Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. In this episode, we're going to get down to the question of why white people should care. And we're going to examine this through the lens of history, science, and current events, including the college admission scandal. Okay. In this episode, we get to talk about why white people should care. I've been waiting to talk about this. (laughs) I love it. Well, because you keep saying like racial injustice isn't over. Yeah, I think that we've gotten to a point where we're so complacent because you and I, right, come from a generation that benefited from the civil rights movement, from a lot of the ERA, all of those forces and movements. And we haven't really had to push or challenge in the same way that a lot of different generations, other generations had, right? So I think to get to where we are now, I should say. So I think we've gotten complacent, but actually hate groups are on the rise. There, one stat that we just looked at showed from the Southern Poverty Law Center showed that there's a 50% increase in white supremacy groups in 2018. Isn't that nuts? I mean, there is over a thousand active hate groups in the United States right now. So crazy, right? Right. I know. And I think the tricky part is that everyone has a voice, right? Which is part, a fundamental principle of our country. But if you're a newspaper owner, let's say, and you publish an article saying the Ku Klux Klan should write again, you can do that. And that is a direct way to continue to sort of incite hate. But I think one thing that we really wanted to talk about here is more nuanced than that, right? Because there is overt hate and overt racism, but then there are systems in place that, while not overtly racist per se, help perpetuate forms of racism, maybe indirectly through things like privilege, right? Right. And I think a big example and one that you and I have discussed a lot recently is the college admission scandal. Because what is a bigger example of sort of rich, privileged kids, white kids, mostly in particular, being able to buy their way through their parents, right, into whatever they want. And one thing that you and I discussed is how directly this is like the biggest proponent for affirmative action, which may not be openly clear, right, at the time. When you hear about this, you think celebrity kids, celebrities buying their way, you know, paying Half a million for kids, right? I know. I know. 6.5 million to get their kid in. Which also, let's not forget the correlation, historically speaking, with like rich white people is a heck of a lot more of a thing than rich black people in this country based on all, right? Is this okay for me to say that? Like based on the historic construct and the redlining, and we'll go into all of those things in future episodes, but there is a privilege associated with like the socioeconomic and racial ties there are so clear in this particular example. Yeah, I think they really stand out because right below that realm of people who have, you know, a million dollars to spend on their kids, you know, basically game the system and commit criminal acts to get your kids into college, right? The rung below that is that you have a lot of money to give your kids the best of test prep, to get them the best tutors, to get them the best college admissions counselors. And I went to a private school. I definitely benefited from a lot of that. But you have a lot of kids out there who through societal structures and lack of privilege and due to their families 
income levels don't have that access. So what this really said to every poor, hardworking kid out there is like, you're screwed. Without privilege, those doors aren't really opening for you. And it also talks to me about, you know, there's this cultures with private school, like if I can pay for it, I can buy it, my kid gets the advantage. And I know we've talked about public school versus private school and that sort of thing. But when you're paying for your child to get in on a merit that they don't even have, you are necessarily removing that spot from somebody who is earned it via merit and who has overcome potentially the disparity. I mean, that maybe mm-hmm. this is where the whole affirmative action thing comes in, but like mm-hmm. looking at the same amount of merit, right? It overtakes that person's struggles or things that they may have had to overcome even more so. So it's like the ultimate act of selfishness and self-centeredness to be like, I'm going to put my kid above everybody else's kid. It doesn't matter to me what everybody else has worked to get. I'm going to pay because I can. And it seems so against this concept of what we know through science to be good for society, like this idea of looking out for each other. And you know, you know it on an intuitive level and a scientific level, we need to look out for one another. And it's like flying in the face of that. It shows the ultimate selfishness, I think. I agree. And I think if you're looking and and our hope is right, our fundamental hope is that along the lines of we rise by lifting others, right, which I think we're going to get into in just a second, is that if you have that kind of money, if you have a million dollars that you're going to basically use to commit, you know, fraud, um, (laughs) right, you know, criminal offenses, that is that money that could be repurposed in so many ways to benefit so many people and to not basically buy your kid a spot that they don't deserve and forever showing your kid and sending that clear message that you weren't going to do this by yourself anyway. Right. I mean, I can't. So there's so many layers, right? right? So many layers. Yeah. But going back to the rise by lifting others, looking at it from a more structural perspective then, because on a personal level, I can't imagine giving my kid that message unwittingly and being like, you weren't good enough. So I'm going to have to step in. Like I thought there's a whole other conversation and sadness I feel around that. But the world happiness report is an annual report that has come out and just was released for 2019. And it ranks countries on six variables that support well-being. right? So these are income, freedom, trust, a healthy life expectancy, social support and generosity. So these are pillars that are known to support well-being from a psychological and wellness standpoint. And so if you have those numbers that are lower, your country ranks lower. And the upshot of this, like the quick relevant point is that the U.S. is dropping. Happiness and life satisfaction for adolescents has actually been going down in the United States since 2012. Even though we're 10th in income for the world, we're in 19th place and we rank low Mm -hmm. for generosity, social support, freedom, corruption, basically we're prioritizing money over happiness is what the study showed in the United States. And things that are removing us from authentic, healthy relationships with one another, like addiction and digital media, those are the things that are currently undermining the United States. But I mean, you and I've talked about the science of happiness and I do get some skepticism. Right. Like really, it's like a thing. Do we, why should we care? <laughs> right. But on Did an some individual- of that come from me at the start? Maybe. Yes. And all your lawyer people, right? <laughs> I know. I'm guilty. I know. <laughs> Did we mention that you're also a lawyer? I don't think we even yeah, talked about I know. any of that. The logical side of that. I know. But I've come around. I've come a long way. Okay. So science has proven that happier people are more successful, right? And happiness is not like, oh, I- just feel so happy right now. It's like this deep sense of flourishing, not a fleeting emotion. So studies have shown like 
doctors who were primed with literally like a piece of candy that made them happier. They couldn't even eat it. They make more accurate diagnoses more quickly. Companies with happier employees outperform the stock market year over year. People who are happier as young people, as measured on a survey, go on to earn more than their peers later in Mm. life. So there's like a true benefit to being happy. Again, on a personal level, happier people tend to be healthier too. They're 50% less likely to have a cardiovascular event. You're half as likely to catch a cold. So all of this is to say that countries and societies that focus on that sense of happiness, the interconnectedness, fair distribution of things like income, freedom, social support, education, they tend to be happier and more successful. And each one of us as a member of society plays a part in that, right? Mm-hmm. People who look different are not necessarily treated fairly. As women, right, we can sometimes relate to that, but it's up to each one of us to decide for ourselves and our peers and our countries to bury our head in the sand or to sort of reflect on what we stand for and make a difference in our day-to-day and systemic lives. Yeah, Um, so important. Yeah. So there's that study of happiness. But then a professor who I had the privilege of interacting with recently said, and he's had a couple of papers out about it, that like scientists need to look at that link between justice, which is how he describes fairness, and well-being. Because if you think about it from a negative standpoint, like people who get microaggressions, I can see where that affects mental health. If you're constantly discriminated against, that would add stress. If you experience child abuse, that is not good for your long-term well-being, right? And so a sense of thriving is just not an absence of mental illness or like a reduction in mental illness, but it's also this enhancement of well-being. And so they've already looked at organizations, like I said before, like the workplace, the family, school. If there's a sense of fairness, it is linked to a better sense of well-being. And so they're looking at how can we on a bigger picture, link those two things more conclusively as a society, not just in sort of smaller micro organizations that exist and also for our individual good outside of those groupings. So I'm fascinated by this field of justice and wellness as we go forward. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, especially because it's true. A lot of times we get caught in the individual events, right? But I think what we're talking about here is structural and much bigger than the individual, the microaggressions, which compound it, right, add up. But to look at it from the big picture level and see the science behind it, I think is fascinating. Totally. Which takes us to some of the structural stuff that we were just talking about before. I'm really curious to learn more if you're game to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we touched on it a little bit at the start of this episode where, you know, I was talking about how people feel like we're sort of past inequities. And when you talk about being past inequities, just in particular for inequities with slavery, can we just throw a couple dates in here? Right? Yeah. Like slavery ended in, and correct me, I'm not the fact person, you're wrong, but but like (laughs) slavery ended in 1865. After about 246 years, correct? Like after, I think the first slave was brought into Jamestown in 1619. Yeah, basically since, you know, as far back the history of our country. country. So just shy of 250 years. Right. Then segregation officially ended in 1954 after almost 90 years, right? Yeah, and I like the air quotes that you made. I know we're a podcast, (laughs) so you can't see it. But that's true because officially officially, right? right? But there's a lot, obviously. But so to look at it, you had like almost 250 years of slavery, almost 90 years of segregation. And then we've been in like post official segregation for only 65 years, right? It's not a long time. So for people to be like, 
poof, magically. We're all better. I was told that the laws changed, so my, you know, long-seated history and structures that have been put in place for the last close to 350 years are gone. Like, no, it's still here. So I just wanted to throw that in there in the conversation we're about to have about affirmative action and perspective on where we're at and why we need policies in place. Yeah, I think that perspective is so important because basically, even though policies change laws, right, or what is considered to be okay on a legal and judicial level, that doesn't change people's opinions immediately, or and it doesn't change deep seated history. So when people say we should just get over something, that's where I think you and I have discussed that the problem that learning gap lies, because to get over something to dismiss it means that we haven't addressed it. And I think we're really good as a country at glossing over things, I think, and as individuals, right, because we don't like to sit with discomfort. But going back to your point about the history of slavery in our country and the history of oppression and how that has worked, it was shocking to me when doing the prep work for this episode that the stats that I saw around affirmative action, because it's such a hot topic in our country and it's continually being challenged on a legal level, but The one study that I looked at, the 2014 Cooperative Congressional Election Study, which is an annual large-scale academic survey that aims to track political attitudes, showed that 66% of young white people between 17 and 34 described themselves as somewhat opposed or strongly opposed to affirmative action policy. So that's two-thirds of young white people, right, among young white women. And this part, like, just blew me away. Two thirds, 67 percent are against affirmative action. I mean, that's when I like put the brakes on. It's like, what? Because Title IX is a huge part of affirmative action. Can you explain Um, Title IX, please? Title IX is basically what gives women an equal representation in colleges, in sports. A lot of times you hear about Title IX in sports, but it's really about getting women equal representation and that having that ability in codified somewhere. So in a legal sense, right? So white women have directly benefited from affirmative action for the longest of any group. And I think it's interesting because when you look at young women of color, for example, who are polled, under 30% opposed it, either strongly or somewhat. So I think it's a misperception that we're not as white women or as white people, but in particular white women, we're not benefiting from this. So I don't see the point when actually the opposite is true. For example, women are now more likely to graduate with bachelor's degrees and attend graduate school than men are and outnumber men on many college campuses. I mean, in my law school graduating class, it was slightly over half female, which is pretty shocking considering the first women went to law school like, you know, 50 years prior. I mean, among doctors, right, 7.6% of doctors in America in 1970 were women, and now a quarter of all doctors in the United States are women. But I think that because white women largely have really benefited from affirmative action and women of color have not in the same way because there is still not only sexism, but racism there, that imbalance and that, you know, disparity in benefits has led to real effects on employment and earnings later in life. And that goes to sort of the fairness and justice point that you were talking about. So in a nutshell, affirmative action really works, but it works way better for white women than it does for all the other women in America. 
And I think that what was so striking about those numbers that I started with, that 67% of younger white women don't believe that affirmative action is really necessary, it sort of highlights the belief that they may also have that maybe efforts to combat sexism and racism aren't really necessary right now because they don't understand the impact that it has on them. I think that, you know, maybe when you and I were growing up and now to this day, we hear talk about how, you know, we don't see color, like we're past it. We're a colorblind society, you know, we're a true melting pot, right? Which I think that's the problem. And there was an interesting study that Jesse Rhodes did at the University of Massachusetts where they looked at this and the data suggests that young white Americans, rather than seeing racism as an ongoing problem, right, that needs to be solved, believe this, believe that America is a colorblind society and that we're kind of past all this racial, you know, injustice. And I think that's that's fundamentally what white women believe regarding affirmative action, that that's great. You know, our mothers fought really hard and our forefathers, too, for equality. And we got that now. So we're done. Right. Affirmative action no longer necessary. It's not really a thing. Right. But it is a thing. It's definitely a thing. It's interesting that you said that about the colorblind society, because one of the things I often talk about is people's inherent biases, like let alone the structural stuff and then the history of education and accessibility and all that sort of stuff. They did a study with kindergartners. Have I talked to you about the red shirt, blue shirt study? And, yeah. Right? So, so fascinating. They split yeah. a group of kindergartners into half the more blue shirts, half the more red shirts, and they said nothing about them. And all week they wore those shirts. And by the end of the week, they said to the red shirts, well, what do you think about the blue shirts? They're fine, but we're better, right? It's this sense of we are wired to see differences. And to deny that is to deny a basic part of how humanity functions. Of course, we're going to see differences. And so we need to accept that some systems are, need to be in place to undo, to try to begin undoing so many of the things that we've consciously created in our country for the last several hundred years, right? Yeah, I think to say that we are past this or we are colorblind is really doing everyone a disservice because, again, we're glossing over the issue. And yeah, I mean, to your point, I think there are studies that show that kids as young as four can see color. And I know my four-year-old can see color because he wants to color his skin color, but he automatically reaches for the peach crayon. And I'm like, that's not you. So I think they're very cognizant of it. They talk about it. Yeah, I think we need to acknowledge that and really understand what that means. Totally. I was going to talk about the, when you talk about the crayon, it feels like a really relevant story that when my kid was little and we had it was before Crayola came out with like the whole skin tone ranges of crayons. And my little one was like, oh, I need the skin color crayon. And I'm like, whoa, okay, so we're going to have a conversation. Like, what does that mean to you exactly? And I rolled up my sleeves. I rolled up and she was wearing a t-shirt. I was like, look, your skin tone and mommy's skin tone are different. And I bet you're going to be a little bit different from daddy too. There's a whole range of skin tones out there. Like, what if you name your color? And she called herself peach. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then you have the peach crayon. But it's like those little moments when they're little is such an opportunity to just say something and acknowledge that, yes, you did see that there's a whole range of colors or differences, you know, and that, I don't know, we're teachers of our kids, right? Yeah, I um, think we'll definitely spend more time talking about this too, because it's such an important thing. Yes, really. totally. Going back to the structural stuff, you and I talked about this earlier, but when we talked about the percentage of population, when you said like over 50% are, did you say they're in law school or was it, you know, colleges, I think you said? 
graduates. Yeah. The mm-hmm. United States has 50.8% are women. And we'll talk about this more in the next episode about why white women in particular. But the United States is, it was interesting because we just talked about the census and how as recently as I think the 2000 census. Yeah, right? pretty close to that, if not that. Yeah. We didn't have the option to be biracial. We had to check other, like, right? There was no box. So institutionally, you and I fit in as others, as half Japanese, half white individuals, we fit in the other box and there was no thing. And so the recent census data, which I was digging up for this conversation, showed that only 2.7% of us, according to the latest census measurements, are two or more races. And I'm just, we're like, how accurate is that? Is the wording of it unclear? What does that mean? What are they measuring? Because it says the U.S. is over 60% white with no Hispanic or Latino, or 77% white only. Like, And even the wording around that was really, really confusing when I'm trying to read the data. So I feel like there's still, even in you know, 21st century times, work to be done on the wording we use or the measurements that we're taking about how we identify. Totally. I think we're still glossing over, right? Like we have to unpack it. We have to really look at what are we measuring and how are we measuring it if we're going to be able to use that for real change Mm -hmm. or to really be able to use the data in a meaningful way. So talk to me about this glossing over because, and we'll talk more about Kavanaugh, I think next episode as well, but it's easy for people to say, I don't have time. I don't have time to think about it. Like, how do we combat that sense of, I don't want to say helplessness, but like my voice doesn't make a difference. I don't need to learn about it. It doesn't apply to me. Like I don't have time to learn in depth about all of these issues anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that we struggled with. I know I struggled with it individually because you get inundated. I was so upset about things that were going on that I signed up for, you know, every email list out there and I, you know, signed petitions and I called my Congress people And then at some point I was like, I'm still getting all these petitions. I don't know what I'm doing. I am overwhelmed. I'm going to start filtering them out and I'm just not going to do anything because someone else is probably going to do something. Right. And I think that's a danger that we all fall into, especially those of us who have privilege and a voice to do something. So I think that in order to really do something, though, we have to educate ourselves about what is important to us. And I think you had a great suggestion about this. It's true. So going back to the science of happiness, like there was a study that was done about how negative news impacts your happiness by the end of the day, just spending three minutes in the morning, just absorbing the endlessly mind numbing news headlines can predict your unhappiness by the end of the day. But I think we all spend like some time on Instagram, surfing Facebook, all of that sort of stuff. We can find that dead space. And instead of letting negative news and the money making companies just suck you into the system and turning us into passive consumers, maybe we can pick a topic that we care about, right? There's so many different issues. Like there's the investigation into Russia. There's a Mueller investigation. There's the treatment of immigrant children, this college admission scandal, climate change. Like there's so many different things that affect a lot of people, right? And has the potential to do it. So I'm wondering if one action point is to pick one area and just focus our time, our free time on reading one extra article or listening to one news report about that particular thing so that we can ask questions for ourselves, not take the headlines that we see hook, line and sinker and really delve into the nuances because everything's kind of a gray zone, right? It's not as clear as headlines would have us believe. 
Yeah, completely. And I find that for me personally, sometimes subscribing to a couple of very curated news emails helps because I don't watch TV largely. I don't watch the news, but I read it. And, you know, we all learn and process differently. So find the method that works for you because that way you're educated so that you can make more impactful choices and better thought out choices. I know I can, you know, on voting, on where you stand on certain issues, on having conversations with your neighbors or friends about this, on looking for ways to get involved in your community through grassroots efforts or more structured efforts. Because it really is true that the squeaky wheel gets the grease and we can't just leave it to someone else. Like we have a responsibility to others, to our children, to our friends, to our country in a way to be educated so that we can be better as a whole. I agree. And it doesn't have to be about everything. It can be the topic that you find most compelling, like that permission to just at least know something more in depth, right? That you can stand for and speak up about. That takes away the overwhelming feeling where you just get frozen and stuck. That way you find your passion because that is what is going to get you talking to others about it and educating yourself. Absolutely. Well, and in the podcast, we'll be discussing specific topics and action items. So if you're not sure what that is, keep listening. And even if you are sure, keep listening. Yes. We're going to continue getting uncomfortable together about all of these. Awesome. Awesome. 